1: Good morning. It's 830 on Tuesday, August 3rd. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs updates us on Mississippi's COVID-19 response. Then the Holmes County Consolidated School District faces existential questions. And the federal eviction moratorium lifts. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Today, we welcome in the state state health officer. He sits down with our Desiree Frazier.
2: Hey, good morning. Hey, Dr. Dobbs. How are you doing?
0: I'm wonderful. How are you doing? Well, I say I'm wonderful. (laughs) I'm doing okay.
1: (laughs) The conversation turns serious. The Department of Health, alongside Mississippi's broader health care system, is under increasing pressure as COVID-19 case counts spike. Over this past weekend alone, the state recorded almost 5,000 new infections.
0: We're seeing an explosion of cases of of delta variant it, it's so very contagious, and with you know us having more activities in the summer and the confluence of this new variant sort of hitting our population, while we've been celebrating for, you know during and after the fourth of July, we've seen a phenomenal increase in cases, and we know that when we see increases in cases that leads to hospitalizations and deaths and concurrent with that, we have seen really overwhelming stress on our healthcare system as bad as, as we have seen it. And it's actually going to be worse than we've ever seen it, without a doubt.
2: I know on Friday you were saying there were very few ICU beds, more people needed them than were available. Do you know how it is at this point?
0: I don't have a new assessment, but I, I do have a sense that it's worse. I get calls throughout the weekend about, you know, different hospitals talking about their individual stresses. I mean, the, the other challenges is we're having some nurses and physicians who are out with COVID, and that puts additional stress on the system. It's only going to get worse. I did have a health system tell me that they actually think they're going to run out of ventilators, which is something we haven't really even contemplated in a long time.
2: And when this initially began... Was it the National Guard that was going to provide ventilators?
0: Well, we do, through our operation in conjunction with MIMA, have some support that we can provide. And certainly we, we will make sure that we okay. provide what resources are, are needed. But healthcare is an exhaustible resource, and I think we forget that. And we, through our collective inaction, just to be frank about it, have put ourselves in this situation. This was Avoidable, I mean, was there going to be a delta wave, yeah, but was it going to be like this? It didn't have to be It's a tragedy of complacency that we're witnessing right now you know ninety five to ninety nine percent of the feedback we get is positive. I mean there are some negative people and and I've even had some threats of physical violence, but by and large it's been very, very supportive and and our political leaders have have been supportive of our public health mission, just to be honest, I think we're very fortunate in that but It's still very challenging because we have full on adopted the individual decision to, you know, forego masks and other sort of restrictions when collective action would would be really more important. I do want to say just one thing about the mask situation. I do think that that's become a little bit too hot and heated. You know, would masks help? It really would. But what's really driving this are mass indoor social gatherings. It's It's going to be, you know, getting together at weddings or parties or social events or, you know, crowded bars and restaurants. That's really what's happening, and so even if you don't want to wear a mask, I mean, people are not really catching it through sort of transient walking through the grocery store, most likely. But it's going to be hanging out with a whole bunch of your, you know, closest friends or extended contacts in a crowded event where one person's going to spread it to twenty or thirty. That's what's going on. So please, I, I really implore that everyone, just for as we're getting to the Delta wave, sort of back down on social activities and just kind of spend a lot more time with your family at home, and avoid large indoor social gatherings.
2: Governor Tate Reeves is saying he reportedly said that masks are foolish. Does that make your job harder?
0: Well, we do know that masks, especially medical quality masks, are an important additional measure that can prevent transmission. We clearly see that there's not a collective interest in having mandates, and and we see that. But it's going to be really tough on schools. I, I really do feel sorry for school systems that are opening up that feel like they don't have the capacity to have their kids wear masks. I understand the, the argument that, you know, if you if you can get a vaccine, it's your choice to take that risk. But, you know, our kids 12 and under don't have that choice and that's going to be a real challenge. As you saw in, in the Lamar County schools, you know, they opened for a week and had to close immediately. And, and this is not surprising. This is going to happen over and over throughout the state because you can't put that many folks in a confined indoor space without any sort of limitations and not expect to see significant transmission
2: have you talked to the governor at all about this
0: yes certainly he and i maintain regular communications and advise him on updated situations right now the strategy is you know individual school districts make that call and we're trying to help the school districts have the information they need to try to open up as safely as possible
2: would you recommend at this point they go virtual since this is such a highly contagious virus?
0: Boy, that's that's a really good question. It's it's hard to imagine until the Delta wave passes that it's going to be easy to, to, to run school. And hopefully we would have vaccine options available for younger kids maybe in the coming months. So it, it's just a hard time right now. I know that we feel compelled for good reasons to have kids in the classroom. Measures like that probably make a lot of sense. In a lot of areas, especially for our younger kids or, or even, even delaying starting school. I, I know that people are really going to be resistant to that, but it's, it's just what it is. It, it's, it's a highly contagious new variant of, of coronavirus. It's biology. It's, it's not politics and it's going to be very disruptive to getting school started this month.
2: I know there has been some hesitancy with the vaccine because of how quickly folks felt that it came out. And getting a vaccine out there for children who are under 12, if it comes too fast, there's going to be that same concern, I would think, but do you want to see that happen soon so all children would have a better opportunity to go to school and fight this virus?
0: Anything we can do to safely increase our options to protect folks. You know, this has been one of the most studied vaccines ever. None of the safety steps were skipped. They were just done concurrently so that it could be done more efficiently. I think what really should be almost as like a moonshot success has been branded. And and I think a lot of that branding is is sort of like a, a little bit of the people who are Making excuses or have excuses otherwise, you want to find a reason not to do it, unfortunately, because we see people jump from excuse to excuse about why not to get vaccinated. So I, I think for many people, it may be true. And I think once we get full FDA approval, it's going to be useful. But for a lot of folks, it's, it's just one, one thing after the other. The vaccines are phenomenally safe, especially the mRNA vaccines. They've, you know, the Pfizer and the Moderna, the performance profile is really unbelievably good. Not even with the Delta variant, it's very, very protective. It looks like it's going to be about over 90 percent effective against preventing severe disease. And and although you do have some breakthrough sort of viral shedding, there's no doubt about that. We knew that would happen with the previous strain. It's still going to be two thirds of the time protective even for that. So if we had a lot more people vaccinated, we wouldn't be having this problem. Still, 96 percent of all new cases are unvaccinated. We don't need to be fixated on the small percentage of people who are vaccinated who are becoming either symptomatic if mild or spreading the virus because that's a small, small percentage of what's driving this Delta wave.
2: Are you seeing an influx in people wanting to get the vaccine at all?
0: Yes, we are. We've seen over the past two to three weeks a doubling in our weekly vaccination numbers. So we anticipate that that will continue. I think people are recognizing the, the risk through the early part of the summer. I think it looked like we might be kind of getting away with the population immunity we had, and that might have been true for the Alpha variant, but absolutely not true with the Delta variant. It's far too contagious to not have more folks vaccinated or or immune through natural infection. And of course, the safer way to do it, without a doubt, is going to be getting vaccinated because we know it's a phenomenally safe, and even for Delta variant effective vaccine.
1: Our conversation with state health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs continues on tomorrow's show. Coming up, the State Commission on School Accreditation runs out of rope with Holmes County. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks.
1: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Holmes County Consolidated School District is one of Mississippi's worst performing. Now, its future is in the hands of the State Accreditation Commission, who met yesterday with the district superintendent and the Department of Education. Kate Royals of Mississippi Today tells us the trouble began in earnest in 2016 when Holmes received an F rating from MDE.
3: Along with the F grade, The state auditor released a report last year that found, you know, widespread problems in the district, including financial misspending, lack of accurate data, and internal financial controls, unlicensed teachers, just a a whole host of problems. And there was a audit done by the district's own auditor in, I believe it was 2019, that basically said the district was unauditable as they didn't have the documents they needed to actually complete the audit.
1: This happened under the leadership of James Henderson. Is that right? Superintendent James Henderson. That's correct. All right. The state did an audit in December of last year and James Henderson, who is no longer superintendent described that investigation as a witch hunt this past May, a new superintendent comes on board. Her name is Deborah Powell. She is a former colleague of James Henderson. And very soon after her coming on board, her daughter who was working for the school district was promoted into a job that paid almost twice as much as she was making. Does it violate the nepotism law in Mississippi?
3: Well, according to the research I've done in the, attorneys I've talked to, she managed to avoid possibly violating the nepotism law because she implemented an assistant superintendent who is going to be supervising her daughter, who became the director of technology for the district. And and that that assistant superintendent was also the one who recommended Dr. Powell's daughter for the position to the board. So there is a law that says that district-level people cannot recommend other people or have other people make hiring recommendations for district-level positions. All
1: right. And so it,
3: it seems like that was not done correctly or legally.
1: Have some of the earlier charges that, for instance, teachers weren't licensed and were working there. Right. Has that been yeah. cleared yeah.
3: up? No, she did tell the commission on Monday that she is working with several colleges and universities alcorn state jackson state to get those teachers that don't have the proper certification enrolled in the coursework there so they can be certified by next summer
1: given some of the background we've just discussed tell us what happened yeah. yesterday and yesterday's hearing which went on for uh-huh. some time as i understand
3: yes it was a uh, 3 hours well first the mississippi department of education particularly Dr. Paula Vanderford, who's the chief accreditation officer for the State Department, made a presentation about the findings from the office's three months long on-site investigative audit that they did of the district that ran, I think, from about April to July. Then Dr. Deborah Powell, the Holmes County superintendent, made her presentation telling her side of the story and what you know, she believes that she's getting the district back on the right track. And she's done things like we just discussed about working with the colleges and universities and the overhaul of the administration. And she talked about the district's own internal audit that they did. She has said that since she was hired in mid-May, she immediately took to figuring out what the district's problems were and what they were in violation of and conducted their own audit of the district. And so she talked a little bit about that and the commission members had a chance to ask some questions of everyone involved.
1: Now there have been a number of times when the state could take over the school district. Is that what the intention is with this hearing?
3: Yes, that is the intention. And, and you know, one of the things the school district said that was interesting was they kept saying, you know, where were you all before when we were really in a state of emergency when, you know, our finances were, they had a bunch of financial problems back in 2019. They referred to some real issues at the high school last year during the pandemic. The attorney actually described to it as the high school was turning into a virtual fight club because it was, it was all virtual.
1: That is the, the idea that
3: they are looking to take it over.
1: Was a decision made? Or, or would will this hearing continue? Well, what happens now?
3: Right. Well, the process is that the Commission on School Accreditation makes their recommendation. They can recommend to the State Board of Education, the, the nine-member State Board of Education, that they believe sufficient evidence exists that there is a state of emergency in Holmes County school district. And they did do that today. So the next step is tomorrow, the state board of education will meet and make its own determination. If it then determines that a state of emergency exists, it will recommend that the governor declare that. And then the whole takeover commences.
1: Kate Royals is the lead education reporter for Mississippi today. Thanks for bringing us up to speed on this. Thanks so much. Thank you, Karen. Coming up, the federal eviction moratorium expires and leaves Mississippi in limbo. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The federal eviction moratorium expired Saturday. It leaves millions of low-income Americans with diminished protections against homelessness. The situation is especially volatile in Mississippi. The left-leaning Center on Budget and Policy Priorities estimates 29% of renters in the state were behind on payments as of last month. That's the highest of any state in the nation. Eliza Durano is part of a Princeton-based think tank called Eviction Lab. She speaks with
4: MPB's Ashley Norwood. Mississippi is unfortunately one of the places where eviction protections were very weak, if not non-existent. So it's also a place where judges have not been following the the now expired CDC moratorium. So in practice, what that means is that there's very little standing in between a family losing their home, also a family contracting COVID-19 during this difficult time, even though they should be protected from an eviction as well as from COVID-19. I know there's also a conversation about, you know, from the landlord perspective. What are your thoughts on that for, you know, landlords who may who may be doing all they can, working with families and, and have, you know, given as much grace as possible, but they still have to make a decision in order to continue to run their business? Absolutely. I understand that landlords need to make a need, especially, you know, mom and pop landlords who might rely on that income for their own, safety, and survival. But, you know, right now there are billions of dollars available in rental assistance around the country and that money has been allocated to help get property owners current. So what we're encouraging landlords and tenants to do is to be in communication to seek both legal and rental assistance available at the local level to help get everyone current and keep people housed during this difficult time. So usually you know, the source of disagreement amongst landlords and tenants is unpaid rent. And folks who haven't paid rent right now, we like to say the rent eats first. People pay rent before they pay for, you know, an inhaler, before they pay for insulin or food. So rental assistance is really meant to be, you know, that's money that has been allocated to help people weather an unexpected emergency. And that money, you know, should go to landlords and tenants during this difficult time and help address some of those concerns that you were just talking about. Can you kind of talk about some of the things that led to this point? Because there are some people who say, well, why are we still expecting this major crisis when there's been stimulus check after stimulus check or more unemployment benefits to kind of avoid this? You know, millions of renters across the country are, are still in fear of losing their homes and also of homelessness. Right now, emergency support, such as unemployment assistance, you know, stimulus checks, rental assistance, eviction moratoria, all of those policies help to prevent people from losing their homes over the last 18 months. But those protections have been expiring, and what that means is that now families who might have been relying on that, if you're facing job loss and relying on unemployment insurance, it's now expired. You know, the rent is still coming due, And according to the U.S. Census Bureau poll survey, as many as 10 million people in the United States have either no confidence or slight confidence in their ability to pay rent next month. We know from our research that eviction is a cause of poverty in America. We call it the scarlet E since it's a, since an eviction eviction filing can damage a renter's credit and rental history, affect job security, the ability to find future housing, credit, and loans. There was actually a two-week period last year between August and September when there was no federal moratorium in place. And during that week, we actually saw evictions spike above historical averages. So, you know, we're concerned that there might be uh, millions of families at risk of of both facing eviction and also homelessness in the coming weeks and months. The CDC moratorium was an important but tattered Band-Aid. And what I mean by that is that In some parts of the country, it provided judges with the justification they needed to stay or delay eviction cases and prevent people from getting kicked out of their homes this year. But in a place like Mississippi, but, you know, and also places like Ohio or Arkansas or Louisiana or Georgia, in many parts of the country, judges have contested the CDC order, so tenants have not had that protection available to them, and What that means is in our eviction tracking system, where we've been scraping court data for six states and 31 cities, we've seen over 450,000 eviction filings just during the pandemic. And during the CDC order, we've seen 350,000 cases. And while that is lower than historical averages that we have, in, in 2016, when unemployment was under 5%, we were still tracking 3.7 million evictions filed per year or seven per minute. We were at crisis levels before COVID-19 entered the scene. And right now I think we're in an important moment. Eviction acts as a cause of poverty in America, particularly for women, communities of color, and children. And so we have the ability to, you know, choose a different path now to help, you know, families, landlords get current, stay in their home, and to heal from the last year and a half.
1: That's Eliza Durano with Eviction Lab. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter, and fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning.